Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I am really excited, as always, to share with you today's interview. I sat down and talked to Dr. Jillian Murphy. She is a naturopathic medicine doctor, and I uh, was really blown away by her knowledge and expertise, really talking about this kind of anti-diet, weight-inclusive, health-at-every-size approach from a medical perspective. It was super cool. So I'll tell you that one of the things that becomes really clear in this conversation with Dr. Murphy is that this approach benefits all bodies. So not just people with eating disorders or in a certain body size, all of us. And this is something that I've been learning about and really feeling is true for a while, but this interview really explains why this is really, it's important for all of us to cut the diet culture cord, as she says. So even, she says, even when things feel relatively quote unquote mild in terms of kind of preoccupation with food or sort of like you're just focused on making shifts and healthy changes, it was really kind of eye-opening. I think we were just chatting about how much freedom people still gain from cutting that diet culture cord. So let me tell you what you can expect in this interview. In this interview, we're covering in a good amount of depth why health at every size is not just a social movement, but an evidence-based scientific movement that is based in what we know about weight, weight loss, and health. So Dr. Murphy breaks this down in a way that I hadn't really heard done before. She does a really good job of breaking down why this makes sense. And so make sure you stay tuned to really understand that this movement is not just about not judging people for their body size, although of course that's very important and directly related to health outcomes. It is more than that. And she breaks that down really well in this interview. We talk a little bit about her training as a doctor of naturopathic medicine And what was interesting with that is where her focus and her kind of breaking away from this more alternative already field of medicine and how her weight inclusive approach is even more alternative and just kind of highlights the fact that's interesting is like pretty much all standard training programs are steeped in diet culture beliefs and we just don't even realize it. So I just thought that was kind of fascinating. So she shares some of her experiences with eventually developing orthorexia and how she finally cut that diet cord for herself, diet culture cord. And then I have to say, I think my favorite part, there was lots of favorite parts in this interview, but I think my favorite part is learning about her work with competent eating through the Ellen Satter Institute. Ellen Satter talks about this concept of division of responsibility, particularly starting with her work with kids and the So we break down what this is, and I'm really excited for this part of the conversation because Dr. Murphy talks about this approach being another tool in her toolkit for moving towards this flexible, healthy, sustainable relationship with food that can be really helpful for you if you feel like you want a little bit more structure than intuitive eating naturally provides. So stay tuned, 100% my favorite part of the conversation. 
Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and before we dive into today's episode, if you're new here, I just want to say welcome. I'm so excited that you've found us. You might be wondering what this podcast and corresponding blog are all about. So in this podcast, we relate everything back to motivation, but not the hustle and grind kind. We talk about truly sustainable motivation that keeps you feeling energized and engaged in your life for the long haul. We talk about why I'm just not motivated is a myth and why the type of motivation you have is so important to fully understand. If you're ready to learn about motivation and respecting your body in an effective way so you can live a life you truly love, you are in the right place. Check out the foundational episodes of the Motivation Made Easy podcast using the links in the show notes or by going to drshawnhondorp.com forward slash one, two, three, and four, or you can just go to the website and you will see all of those there. And if you're ready to take that first step, if you're feeling sort of ungrounded in your values or you're not really sure, you're feeling kind of overwhelmed or a lot of decision fatigue, maybe you're feeling anxious or you're kind of like, what is this anti-dieting approach really about? What my very favorite strategy to work on with people and frankly also within my online program the by far everyone said that this was their favorite strategy is clarifying your values so this is the very most crucial thing to do in developing autonomous and sustainable motivation so what you're doing with clarifying your values is looking at different areas that different people might value and tying it to things that truly matter to you. So to get started with the first few steps with this, grab the free guide at drhondorp.com forward slash goals, and you're going to be walked through step by step to get really clear on what matters to you so you can start focusing on living a life you truly value. I promise you, you are not going to regret this. And before we dive into today's content today, just a reminder that all information in this podcast and blog are for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. Let's dive in. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jillian Murphy. I'm so excited to have her here today. Dr. Murphy is a licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine, a coach, and affiliate of the Ellen Satter Institute based in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. She works with diverse, smart, health-conscious women who are done with dieting, looking to get out of their heads and reconnect with their body. She uses cutting-edge eating psychology, in-the-know insight and guidance around diet culture, health, and wait to teach women why they stay stuck in negative patterns around food and constant body dissatisfaction and how they can pursue health without falling back down the diet hole. So Jillian also offers in-depth courses for professionals and practitioners looking to grow their anti-diet weight inclusive businesses. So we'll be chatting a bit about that today. She wants to help them feel super confident in their practices and their process. She currently offers both an eight-week intensive and a year-long mastermind, offering up the very best support and education for newbies and highly seasoned practitioners alike. So welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Dr. Murphy. So, so excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. Yeah. So can you start by telling us just a little bit more about your personal story and how you got so interested in this work? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, it's one of those where like, you know, we could talk about just my story for an hour. I think every woman and food and body have a long and sordid history. But for me, I'd say that the majority of my childhood felt really quote unquote normal. I was very athletic and I was into a lot of sports. And so just had that sense of confidence and capability in my body. Um, I was aware, of course, it was the 80s. I was very much aware of the fact that that my body didn't quite measure up to those diet culture ideals, right? The don't, yep. Yeah. <laughs> don't, yep. But it was like it wasn't inside me yet. It was around me, but it wasn't inside me. And and I'm not sure if you remember or or how old you are, but at the time it was a very big belief system like the coming of age story, the, the, you know, ugly to beautiful story, the blossoming story was very big in all of the movies at the time. And so it was like, oh, it just, you know, I'm going to hit my stride. I'm going to find my moment. Mm. And then I'll look like all of those women in the movies. I'm like, it's going to be fine. Uh-huh. And, um, and then, 
Uh, interestingly, things really shifted for me in university. I was a soccer player. And then through a series of events, I switched to cross country running for my university. And at the same time became interested in naturopathic medicine, which is very much about, you know, the food we eat and how it affects our body and health. And it's more than that, but that's a big part of it. And so long before there was a clean eating movement or people cared about green juices or whatever, I was into that stuff and, um, it became kind of part of my personality and it was definitely a part of my lifestyle and through the increased running and the small tweaks to my diet at that age, at that time, I was a very medium sized kind of athletic girl. I lost some weight. Mm -hmm. It was unintentional to begin with. Um, but the feedback that I got from it was really overwhelming and so for me, that was one of those, there were several moments, I think, but that was one of the really big moments when um, diet culture stopped just being something around me and became something that was inside me. You know, it'd be, it's like the enemy started becoming from within. Mm-hmm. And so my anxiety just started to grow around food. Um, I became very nervous about eating the wrong things and like going back to whatever I, you know, monster I had been prior to this small amount of weight loss. And so I became more and more rigid with my food, um, you know, and then I lost a little too much weight and it was really shocking to see how small I call it like the window of appropriateness is for mm-hmm. a female because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like above this, no good below this, no good. You have to stay in this very small, narrow window that was almost impossible for me to maintain. So, oh, yeah. So the um, social appropriateness, yeah. Not talking about yeah. biological, no, not like just, health yeah, appropriate. Like no, 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 no. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's considered attractive and desirable and correct, you not know, going to get, yeah. Comments and yeah. Opinions. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I developed what we now know as orthorexia, which is like a very huge obsession with the healthiness of food, but nobody really had words for it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly then, you know, I also got into naturopathic medicine, like the training, the schooling. And so I was working my way out of that while in a program that absolutely um, promotes that perspective and point of view. So it was a super interesting four or five years. And I did it though. I I did take a year off in the middle of my degree because I really felt like I was at a bit of a, like I I needed to, to get past some tough stuff. And I had a running addiction. I, I just took a year off. I traveled. It was really good for me. I got through a lot. And so I came out the other end of that feeling mostly I would say healed up around food. And I felt like when I was even in, I opened a general naturopathic practice and felt um, like I was doing a pretty good job of keeping weight out of my practice, you know, but I was inadvertently because I just never explored it, perpetuating a lot of diet culture beliefs through health and wellness. So I wasn't being like, come to my practice to lose 20 pounds, but it would be like, oh yeah, your, you know, your body isn't exactly like this. So it must be because you have inflammation or this or that or whatever. So let's restrict food this way. And, you know, it was accidental. Mm -hmm. And I was really confronted with that after I had my second baby. And that's just because I put on weight in my second pregnancy and it didn't come off. And I, I gave myself a fairly, a fairly good window of time. Um, but then I started to believe that my body was a very big problem again mm-hmm. and went down, you know, as a naturopath, I did every test. I took every supplement, bioidentical hormones. I did everything. Um, and my body wasn't really changing. And I started to find myself spiraling down that hole a little bit again of like, ugh, I'm getting more and more limited in my food. I'm getting more and more focused on this and and it didn't feel good to me. So I stopped. I hired a body image mentor and, you know, she just said to me after lots of conversation and, and evaluation, like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with your body or the way that you eat even, except that you're maybe a little too preoccupied with food. Like you're not, she basically was saying you're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time anybody had ever offered that up to me. Like maybe this is just where your body wants to sit right now. And so that's, that really cracked open. I think those like deepest layers of untangling, like not just getting off the, um, surface diet weight loss train, but really untangling the deeper layers of like how we tangle up weight and health 
and how that leads to so many problems for, for people as well. So, um, in doing that, I completely changed my practice, obviously. And now that's all I work with. And that's all I've worked with for, um, almost, almost a decade now. I mean, it took me about three years where I was transitioning out. So probably eight, seven to eight years of working only on this. Um, and now, yeah, I, so now I, I, I not only work with women and I work with men as well. It's just a smaller number of men come to see me. They tend to be athletes who are struggling, um, and kids, but now I work with professionals and practitioners as well, helping them bring this into their work, whether they're therapists or medical doctors or nurse practitioners or psychologists or, or Mm -hmm. osteopaths or health coaches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you kind of were aware to some extent that the way you were thinking about it years ago, like you said, you kind of worked through it during naturopathic, like during your schooling, you were like, I made some progress. It was pretty good. But then kind of they took that like next time of like getting too preoccupied and really working with that coach to be like, wow, this is really pulling me down in a way that I didn't realize. Does that sound accurate? Like, and I think that's really common. And that they're linked and that they're absolutely linked. Right. So I think that, you know, Virgie Tovar is a fat activist. She's like a a, a scholar and she's just very, very um, interesting person who writes about this work. And she talks about with any of these like isms that we encounter, um, you know, the first step is that it goes from overt to covert. It's not like it just goes away. So with sizeism or fat phobia, um, just like with ableism or racism or, you know, it doesn't just go from existing to not existing. Typically, one of the iterations is it goes from being overt to covert. And so for me, I think like what I, what I identified is I had gotten rid of the really overt diet culture in my belief system, but I hadn't gotten rid of the covert, the the subtle nuanced ways that I was still believing that there was one right body and one right size and shape and Mm -hmm. that everybody should find it easy to get there. And if they weren't, then it was something they were doing wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Something yes. I was doing wrong. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's exactly it, but that, that it's all still diet culture. It's just mm-hmm. dressed up differently, right? Mm-hmm. And we're allowed to feel more, you know, it's more socially acceptable to be engaging in the covert version at the moment of diet culture than the overt, but they're both, they're both part of the same. Yeah. Mess. Yes, absolutely. And I always think of it as like sort of a a string that's like, at least I think of diet mentality as like a string that's holding you down and you don't even realize it. Like your, my journey was sort of like progressive. Like it was like, I'm definitely moving way away from like this rigid. In fact, I never did rigid, intense things. Like it was always like this very, like, I, I'm just healthy eating. Right. Or like I'm, and I'm flexible and it's fine. And then you're like, but then you finally cut the string and you're like, whoa freedom. You don't even realize it was holding you back. Yeah. Cause I would say that except for that period of time in my really like early twenties, when I had that rigidity, which I was able to loosen quite quickly because I just luckily really do love food and love being social with food. And so I knew I didn't want to live like that. Um, I'd say the same thing. Like I'd say I was very, but it was still so um, perspective shifting and like altering even though I wasn't at that time engaging in what I would consider to be like hyper restrictive diets, I was just, you know, making adjustments, you know, anyway, I I, I think the same thing. It's really amazing. Even when things feel mild, uh, how much freedom you can gain from really cutting that diet culture cord. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And you kind of touched on this. You're a licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine. How is this different from an MD or DO? I don't think people are very well educated about your field of medicine. So is there anything yeah, you want to Yeah, and it might know? be a little, it's a little different, I think, Canada versus the States. But I'll say that essentially um, in Canada, we're trained as primary care practitioners, but we're not working with pharmaceuticals. There's a little bit of, of, um, like regulation shifting happening. And I think that there's some primary sort of like um, more standard pharmaceuticals that would be used in family medicine. They're starting to open up to naturopaths out West, like antibiotics, like certain, you know, certain, um, but for the most part, naturopaths are not working with pharmaceuticals. So we're working with food 
We're working with supplementation, nutraceuticals. We're working with acupuncture and Chinese medicine, uh, manual therapies, herbal medicine. Um, that's the major difference. And then osteopathy in Canada, which I think this is a big, you know, different in the States where osteopaths are doctors here, they are manual practitioners and, and, um, their scope of practice is quite different from, so that's an unregulated profession in Canada. I love osteopaths. Um, just at the moment, it's an unregulated profession. So unfortunately through, you know, I have friends that are osteopaths and, um, through all of these COVID lockdowns, they haven't had permission to work, which has been really terrible. Mm, um, okay. you know, whereas yeah. naturopaths have been able to keep practicing, chiropractors have been able to keep practicing, even massage therapists who are regulated here in Ontario have been able to keep practicing. Um, and those poor fabulous osteopaths have not. So, okay. um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I think there's like a lot of confusion. There's just so many different professions. So people, even as a psychologist, I am asked like all the time. So you're a psychiatrist. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> and no people just get confused, yeah. but yeah. So what do you do? It's, so I think it's interesting benefit. though. I will say, cause like, you know, the whole, the, the philosophical underpinnings of naturopathic medicine is that we're looking to get to the root cause of things and that we really trust the human body. Like it wants to be well and it wants to heal itself. And it's this hole that we need to treat. But it's so funny that as I've really broken off from like an alternative sector of health and wellness, I've even deviated to a more alternative sector. I just feel like I approach bodies with much more of that perspective. Like it's like, that's the underpinnings of naturopathic medicine. And yet we don't trust the body at all with food, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we yeah. don't, and we don't trust the body to land at the right weight. We're constantly, you know, taught to interfere and restrict and control. And I think that it's interesting that when you take a really big step back and look at it, um, the work I'm doing is, is about so much more trust in the mm-hmm. human body mm-hmm. and in our when we break away all the barriers, that, that deep natural desire to feel good and to pursue things that are good for us when we're not, um, in unnaturally restrictive situations. So, um, yeah. you know, that's something that's interesting to me because I felt like I was breaking away from naturopathic medicine in doing this work, but I actually feel like I am honing in on, on those philosophies more than ever. Yeah. More root cause. Cause we're looking yeah. at like the impact of so many different factors on that root cause. Like that lack of trust is the root cause, but it's caused by all these other external And really factors. valuing and really valuing like the other thing is, you know, really valuing mental, emotional and social health, which I think completely, like I think that there's a real hyper focus at the moment on physical health mm-hmm. and yeah. physical symptoms. And it's like, well, anything that we have to do to get rid of this physical symptom without considering how that might impact these other areas of someone's life. Oh, yeah. I love that because, yeah, that I, I would say in like the health sphere that, that we obviously overfocus on weight, we overfocus on health habits, eating and exercise. But yeah, the places that I see we miss the most is like emotional well-being, stress management, social relationships and, and sleep is kind of tied in there, too. Agreed. But those Agreed. are like my yeah. So it's like, why? Yeah. It, it's, I think it's just more complex and like harder to, I mean, sleep, you can give some tips and things and all of these things you can give tips for, but they're not usually easy fixes, at least no, not like relationships. No. I know. People are always like, what are your five tips for whatever? And I'm like, oh gosh, do you have an hour? You know, <laughs> well, they're, they're not so sound bitey. Yes, exactly. Um, so let's, let's step back a little bit, talk a little bit about the health at every size movement, what it means to be like a weight inclusive provider. And maybe if you can speak to, I've had people on that we've talked a little bit about how it's like a social movement, but it's social movements are intimately related to like science and biology. So if you can speak to that, that would be wonderful. Right. So, um, the, the social piece of the movement is just really advocating for the dignity of all bodies and understanding that it's really well documented that the, that bodies, you know, the larger the body, the less dignity there is in the medical field and in the business sector. And, you know, these things are incredibly well documented, like quality yeah. of care goes down. Um, that halo effect, that sociological effect where we give all kinds of attributes to people who are in bigger bodies. So the social movement piece of it is just like, Hey, biodiversity is fat is a fact. And 
regardless of how or why people end up in different size and shaped bodies, all bodies are deserving of respect and dignity and care. Um, and then the science behind the health at every size movement is really understanding that we have yet to date. We understand or, or, or there's been a lot of exploration of weight gain, but little to no concrete evidence on how to help any individual human lose weight long term. And more than that, um, no evidence as to how to help them lose weight long term without collateral damage, meaning damage to the relationship with food, you know, relationship with their body, a lot of really negative behaviors that are born out of these weight loss strategies that are being used. Um, and ultimately, not always, and I don't want to pathologize it, but like ultimately weight gain most of the time is what is the outcome of these weight loss strategies. So if weight loss is your focus, it isn't mine, but if it is, you're going in the wrong direction with these strategies. So, so basically the premise is, um, we, we don't know how to help people lose weight. So that's like a fundamental understanding mm-hmm. that the strategies that we've engaged in have been more harmful than helpful, that there is a much wider range of body diversity than the medical community currently allows for or normalizes. And that it's all of these things that are actually leading to like the health issues that we're seeing. And so the goal with my work is not to completely ignore weight and say that there's no role, but to say that I am going to ethically only engage in treatments that are not going to harm the person that I'm working with. And so that looks like focusing on behaviors, focusing on positive, you know, positive health behaviors and strategies um, that are controllable and weight is not controllable. You know, you and I and, you know, 10 of our best friends could all engage in the same movement and food strategies. And some people might lose weight and some people might stay the same and some people might gain weight. And 50% of those people might develop some sort of disordered pattern with food as well. Right. So it's about understanding that weight is an outcome and that trying to unnaturally mess with that outcome or control it, uh, doesn't typically work and tends to lead to a lot of, of, um, side effects. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you breaking it down in that way because it's, I think the, the fact that there's like, there is a ton of science and evidence behind the movement, but it's, it's somewhat complex just because it's like, like anything, it's more nuanced, but I, I think you summarized that all really well. Um, and I guess in terms of there's many conditions where we see weight loss recommended for, right? Yeah. And I think we, like you were alluding to, there's obviously many ways that that can be harmful. Can you speak to some of that where you, like some of the main places that you see that occurring? I, I know there's a lot, but. Yeah, I'd say, you know, conditions. the biggies, like, you know, the top, the top ones that I think everyone can, can, that they think about as being blamed on fat or blamed on weight are things like diabetes. Um, heart conditions like, you know, cholesterol or high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Um, PCOS is a big one. Um, uh, I already said diabetes, right? Heart stuff, PCOS, cancer, cancer, cancer. Um, and so the way that it's approached in the health at every size movement is that the reality is that it can't just be because of fat, because we know thin people get all of these conditions as well. Mm -hmm. So the causal relationship has not been established. There may be correlations, absolutely, between weight and some of these conditions. Um, But that doesn't mean that one caused the other. It could just be that they're showing up with the same genetic makeup in that human um, or that eating certain things or, you know, living in a certain way is leading to both things for some people, but not for other people. Um, and then again, fundamentally, the real bottom line is that we have no idea how to help those people lose weight long-term safely anyway. So even if we could establish a causal relationship, there's no way to treat that again, ethically and safely without potentially causing a lot more harm. Mm-hmm. So for me, 
weight loss as a metric of success is just off the table in those conditions. And instead it becomes, you know, okay, if there was a thin person sitting in front of me with diabetes, what would I suggest they do? Oh, move their body. You know, we would talk about gentle nutrition. We might talk about supplementation, you know, and fu- and, and also the biggest piece of my work is healing up the relationship with food because typically if someone has one of these conditions and or they've been in a larger body for a while, they have encountered an incredible amount of weight stigma. They've gotten not great advice. They've engaged in really harmful behaviors. And now that, that fundamental relationship with food and body is really damaged and really broken. And so first of all, we have to heal that up. And then once we heal that up, then we're able to start evaluating gentle nutrition tactics or movement or whatever it happens to be. But before that, it's like, you know, it's this catch 22 where it's like people keep trying to do the thing that's good for them. But because they're still locked into diet mentality and problematic beliefs, they do the wrong thing and things get worse. And then they think they're more broken. And so they engage in those behaviors again and things get worse. And it's this, you know, it's this, I don't know if it's catch 22 or just like this bad cycle, right? Of, of, um, believing that their body is inherently broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure like you were saying earlier, having that one person say like, you're not doing anything wrong that I would imagine you've had that experience where that, that in itself is the statement that, or this isn't your fault. I've heard that exact term relayed to me about what was so helpful to hear from a physician. Right. Like, and I'm sure that's, it's amazing how much we underestimate the role of pressure and the role of shame and stress that that places on us. And just that's, simple statement, but powerful. Yeah. The, the kind of like, this isn't your individual failure. Like this is a failure of the system and the information that you've gotten. And like a lot of times people will be engaging in negative food behaviors, but where did they come from? Like you weren't born eating like this. And so really taking those, the time to trace that back and, um, to show like, what you're engaging in is maybe not normal eating, but it is a very natural reaction to the restriction that you've been under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is yeah. the way human bodies behave when they are starving. This is what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people like struggle with that because they're like, well, I want to take responsibility for what I'm doing. And it's like, well, great. But <laughs> they have a hard time kind of taking that, that, they have a hard time not blaming themselves, not only because of the messages they've gotten, but they also like sort of at some level believe like, but look, I'm still doing these wrong behaviors, quote unquote, which like, yeah, said, we have to yeah. Look well, that's it. Cause people say, but I, but I'm not starving myself. I never stop eating. And I'm like, right. But emotionally there's restriction happening. Like your whole approach to food and health and it's all restrictive. It's all like any day now. Any moment now, I'm going to finally get it together and I'm never going to eat any of these foods ever again. And that in and of itself, when our body is already hypervigilant about actual restriction, because um, that tends to be the cycle, right? There's actual restriction. People stick with it for a certain amount of time and then they end up either cycling through restriction and overeating or they're just overeating. And so it's like, but I'm not starving. And I'm like, right. But in your brain, you still are because Mm -hmm. you're trying to get back to those days where you weren't, where you were restricting, you know? And so your body is like primed for it and continually reacting as though any moment you're going to cut off the food supply, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So it's hard for people to wrap their brain around that though, Mm -hmm. because even though, restriction fails for like 90 to 95% of people. Every single person is taught that it's a failure of their personal willpower. Yeah. Yeah. Or intelligence or, yeah, I just haven't figured it out. I haven't gotten the right plan. I'm, I'm, I'm lazy. I'm, I'm whatever. Well, and I think people might hear too, this like 95%, which I, but then they're like, but I want to be the 5%, right? Or <laughs> like, and it's like, well, yeah. And, and, and I would say sure. I mean, I, don't I would like... say sure to that. I always say like, that's fair. You know, yeah. like there, it, there are social privileges. It is a natural thing. Again, talking about natural reactions. 
it's a natural reaction to living in a society that ranks bodies. And we don't just rank it on weight. Obviously, we rank it on ability and race and, and gender and sexuality. We rank, we constantly rank bodies. And, um, you know, it's, it's natural when you live in a world that ranks bodies and that, that values and, and does give a certain amount of social privilege to a certain kind of body to want that body. Yeah. To yep. me, the difference is, are you willing to sacrifice your well-being for it? You know, it's kind of like, I wish I could win the lottery. Like, I wish I could be six feet tall. I wish I could, you know, those are all things you might want, you know, you might want. Mm-hmm. But are you willing to, you know, there's a big difference between wanting that social privilege and and deciding to sacrifice all of your confidence and, and well-being and how you feel and... um Yeah. Yeah, I love that. How you interact I think, with food for for that. Yeah. Right. And I think it is really important that we we give people choice. And I don't think this is intended, but I do see sometimes in like health at every size circles, or I think some clients that I've worked with have just experienced that it can feel like you can't want weight loss or you can't like yeah. have that desire. And it's like, and I don't think that was ever the intention, but sometimes that message can get interpreted, right? Like it's always bad if you diet. It's always bad if you desire weight loss. And that's not... I think one of my guests said like, it's not, it's anti-dieting. It's not anti-dieter or like, it's not judging the person. Right. But, but I sometimes think that can get lost when it's like, yeah. you have full choice and autonomy over your body. And, um, that's a message. Totally. And I think like, hear. I think it's, um, you know, when you live in a world that, um, has idealized dieting and weight loss, that, that the, the strength of some of that messaging is quite powerful in terms of trying to just balance the conversation. But I think that the lived reality for individuals is that we're often caught up in the messy middle of all of that. And um, it's just like adding another layer of shame and guilt. It's like, okay, you feel you feel bad because you don't like your body. And now you feel extra bad for feeling bad for not liking your body because like you should be a better activist. You should be a better feminist. You should be a better, you know, person, just be better. (laughs) It's like, but I'm just a human trying to live in all of this, you know? And so I'm like a big fan. I just, I recorded a podcast for mine actually. And it was so just yesterday. And it was a follow-up with a woman. I had done this one-on-one session with, and the, one of the most, um, powerful tools from that session for her was being allowed to be honest about the sadness of not being in a thin body anymore or being able to be honest about the moments where she has the desire to go on a diet, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely, and being able to say it out loud and then name it for what it is and separate herself from it, take a breath and figure out what the the better thing to do for her is, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, exactly. It's like a grieving process. Unfortunately, that people have like, you have to be able to feel your your emotions and the grief of like, I can't feel this thing that I've been told I should want. And I've been told if I could just get there, that I will feel and it's like, what you're wanting is like connection, love and belonging that we all want. And yet, like it can be it can be very challenging when you live in a world that's not it's in many ways not going to give that to you in the way that you deserve it's just incredibly yeah. frustrating yeah yeah absolutely um i want to ask at least one question about your work with ellen satter and division of responsibility because i love that work and i think a lot of people don't know what it is so i'd love for you to just give a super i, I know we don't have a ton of time but this super brief description of division of responsibility how you work with kids on developing a healthy relationship with food and how I'd love to hear your thoughts about like, yeah, is this just for kids? Is this for everyone? No, no. So it's so interesting because yeah, competent eating uh, just never really caught on the way intuitive eating did, right? Like it's like it, people don't know about it as much. Um, so they're both very well researched, research validated models and I use both of them. So the, the way that I differentiate them is I started using intuitive eating because that's what I used for myself. Like I was a human who, um, you know, I, I operate in a certain way. I have fairly good access to lots of things. I'm not dealing with health conditions. Um, and I was really just trying to overcome the, the, the food rules that I had imposed on myself over the years. And so I kind of needed like ultimate freedom to eat or not eat and to, 
eat what I felt like eating and do what I wanted when I wanted to. And, and there's many people that I work with where that, that is like exactly what they need. They like, they've been in all no's for a long time and they need to be in all yeses. And then they're going to find their way back to that, mm-hmm. that discernment, that place of discernment together. We'll work toward that. It's hard to do that on your own. We have, we typically have to work together to get there. I, I started, um, I had been introduced to Ellen Satter's work when my kids were young, but I don't think I understood the impact of it until I started wanting to work with children. And obviously children just, you can't just like get, you know, developmentally and for parent parental comfort, because it's challenging, you know, a lot of this, this, um, internally led trust-based eating really challenges parents' boundaries and, and edges with food as well. So you can't just like give kids free range in a cupboard and say, eat whatever you want, whenever you want. You know, that's not how we um, teach them to be good eaters. So I turned to Ellen Satter's work initially because it it um, discusses the division of responsibility. So it basically, the short form is it provides a bit of a structure and a framework within which kids are able to, to, to have some autonomy mm-hmm. and to figure things out for themselves and to develop yeah. that internally led eating. And the structure is essentially just meals and snacks mm-hmm. and parents choosing the food and providing a wide variety of food, including forbidden foods and letting kids then within the structure of meals and snacks and sitting together and eating, um, say yes and no and figure that all out. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, this model has been incredibly helpful with so many people that I work with, just because sometimes personality wise, there are people who need structure. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. Some people just it is too hard for them to have free reign. Um, Individuals with neurodiversity. I mean, I think we're all neurodiverse, like what is normal, but like when people have a harder time connecting with internal regulators that structure is incredibly helpful and it keeps, you know, intuitive eating can be exhausting for some people that constant, like at any moment, all the choices are yours. Decision fatigue. Yeah. Decision fatigue. And also incredibly helpful with some of those health conditions like diabetes, where eating tends to be quite chaotic, whether it's just because the personality of the individual or because of a history of all of the restriction that's been placed on them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, step one, just getting people to eat regularly is incredibly powerful for their blood sugar or for, you know, inflammation for all of those markers. So I, I started with that model for kids, but interestingly, it's been very helpful at broadening my toolkit for working with people who don't totally fit into that intuitive eating model. Yeah, I love that because I, I mean, I've heard about like Ellen Satter's work many years ago, and I, I feel like the way I think of intuitive eating now is sort of in that like it's a framework of like freedom of choice, but within that framework, like you can give yourself structure if that's what's helpful to you. Um, yeah, but I don't know if I explain it that eloquently of like this idea of. Um, yeah, just there might be certain personality types or certain health conditions. Like I think it's helping bring us back to like our intuition, which isn't just how do we feel. It's also like, what do we think? What do we know about ourselves? And and most of us do benefit from some degree of structure. And so, yeah. And I think sometimes it gets misinterpreted that I'm saying, you know, within intuitive eating, you're right. There is the ability to give yourself structure, but the bit to me, the big differentiators is intuitive eating when I read it, when I've gone through like the, when I've studied it, when I've gone through, it's really encouraging us to be kind of continually tuned in to hunger and fullness. Whereas Ellen Satter is encouraging us to be tuned in, to get our body tuned into, to hunger and fullness at specific times. And again, that's just very helpful for some people that can't access those things. Um, it's like, okay, well, let's get the structure let's get your body tuned to structure and rhythm and routine versus finding your own rhythm and routine on your own and then allowing that to create the structure for you, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, and yeah, it. I think it's very like sort of somewhat of it's like language and just like what resonates with the person and gets them on yeah. board. And some of it's just also knowing yourself. And so I do think it's like, yeah, they're very sim- similar in many ways, but like I, um, Absolutely. And I think, I think it is a little bit, probably it comes down a lot to just semantics and words and how we're looking at it. But I think like, um, 
any kind of structure in my mind, and this could have just been my own perception, but I think it's bigger than just me. Any kind of structure was somehow buying back into diet mentality. And so studying this model, she's like, no, you don't have to, we're not pathologizing any weight. We don't care where people end up. We're just trying to help provide a framework to help them normalize their eating patterns. And like I said, um, giving, being given permission to work in that way really opened up my practice because I felt like I had a limited toolkit for people who were not doing well with just tune into your hunger. Yeah. When are you hungry? Yeah. What do you feel yeah. like eating? Cause they'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, that's and really sometimes we can work past that and other times people need support in that. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting. Like I've been, I don't know. I feel like the more I've been pretty open with like my personal journey and reflected on it, obviously increasingly as I do this work, but, um, I, I did Weight Watchers many years ago and lost, you know, not a ton of weight, but some. And then I was like doing intuitive eating for a while after that, like something about Weight Watchers for me at that time, like just provided with me some structure and like some, and I'm not advocating for Weight Watchers, but it's like, it's some in it, but in that way, it was like more vegetables. Like it just ended up being like sort of a more eating pattern that I felt good on and like sort of some structure. Well, I think, so. I think for some people, you know, um, for some people, what I've heard them say about Weight Watchers, and again, I don't advocate for it at all either, um, is that there is like a certain piece of education, I think, around like, you know, for people who feel really out in left field with no idea where to start with food or what's the right, you know, yeah. you know, what they should be eating. The The problem, I think, with it, as with any of these like lifestyle diet programs, is that it tells you sort of what the right amount of food for you is. And I've worked with people where really varied amounts of food are actually correct for them. And mm-hmm. um, not just person to person, but even within the same person through seasons or, or phases and, and, um, and just feeling, you know, anytime we are being led by external measures, we're pulled out of that internal regulation. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I can see that when I hear people say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see how something about that program teaches people about vegetables or fruit or like rounding out their meals or something. Um, It's just this ongoing connection to points in any way or weight loss as an ultimate measure of success that really keeps people. It's like one of those new covert ways that we keep people locked into diet culture while, while tricking them into thinking that they're not. Yeah, a hundred percent. And my the only reason it worked that first time is because it was like there was a lot of flexibility built in, but then it didn't work time three or four. So like, you know what I mean? Like it's because which is so also true of lots of diets, right? The first diet, there's often like people are often chasing a first diet feeling yes. because our bodies get good at resisting mm-hmm. any kind of control or restriction, and so typically that first diet for a lot of people felt really good, and they were able mm-hmm. to stick with it, and they saw results, quote unquote. Um, and then subsequent attempts, they don't feel so good. They can't stick with it and they don't see the same results because their body's gotten really good at being like, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to get better at managing starvation or restriction. Right. Yeah. I'm going to resist this and I'm going to get smarter, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a nuanced thing. And we have to be so honest with ourselves about like what is going on for us, which is hard to do. It's actually just, it's easier to reflect back. And even for me, it, it was like a lower stress time in my life too. So that like, no one can track that much long term. You know what I mean? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, there's so many factors. And then we, like you said, we get so fixated on this work. So, um, I'll ask you one like motivation question. I think you have to go, but what is, we always like to ask about types of motivation on this podcast, understanding how people go from like external controlled motivation to internal. Is there an example of a behavior you have that was always a should, like you used to struggle to do it consistently, but you've been able to kind of do it more consistently. It's more, um, you know, either cause you value it or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think exercise for me. And I, I never struggled to do it consistently. I was always really good at measuring up to that external, um, whatever boxes I was trying to tick with exercise, but it was a lot more anxiety led. It was, uh, I was, it was very rigid, very scheduled, very, um, if I didn't do it, I felt a lot of anxiety. I felt bad. Whereas like today, for example, I slept in, I have, you know, and I just trust because exercise feels good to me 
that I'm going to go for a walk later today. I know I've got time in my schedule. And then, you know, the kids are kind of busy tonight. And so I said to my husband, you know, maybe do you want to play tennis later? And he's like, yeah, let's play tennis. So that kind of fluidity is, is coming from a place of like, I trust that I'll fit exercise in at some other point if I don't get up in the morning and run or walk or whatever. Uh, and also if it all fell apart and I didn't, I would be okay. Yeah. It would be fine, but, but more often than not, it works out because I genuinely love it. And I know that it helps me manage stress and I feel better and I find it fun. And I know that's not true of exercise for everyone, but for me, that is true. And, um, so on the outside, interestingly, I mean, I think it looks a little bit different because I'm less like there was only one kind of exercise that was correct when I was, you know, back in that old mode. But um, otherwise, I don't think it looks maybe so different from the outside, but it's totally different. Yes. Yeah. Like only from the where it's coming from internal. Yeah. The behaviors can look similar, but it's like sometimes only the other person in the body really knows what's going on. So it's, yeah. yeah, I love that. It feels so much more free and loose and like from a place of just trust and enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and where can people learn more about the work you're doing and connect with you? And if you want to share a bit about some of the exciting things you have coming down the pipeline, we'd love to hear yeah. about that as well. Well, you can find me at foodfreedombodylove.com. So that's like, and my Instagram handle is foodfreedombodylove. Um, I currently have um, sort of my signature Food Freedom Body Love program, which is for people who are really struggling with food and body. I also have Redefining Health for people who are, you know, maybe a little further along the track or things didn't fall, you know, so deeply down the hole, but want to learn how to feel good in their body and like get back on track when things aren't feeling good without dieting, without falling back down that diet hole. Um, and then right now I'm really focused on my practitioners because I'm launching a mastermind that starts on August 25th. So for people who are out there in the world, whether again, therapists, naturopaths, nurse practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, if you're in a helping field, if you're a fitness professional, um, and you want to bring this work, you, maybe you're already even doing it and you want to, you want to up level, you want to dig deeper into it. It's just going to be a year long support community where we're learning and growing and um, having these more highly nuanced conversations that can be quite challenging to have in other spaces. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so needed. I mean, I know I yeah. could benefit, right? Like, because it is being able to have a conversation about weight in a place where people really understand you're not going to accidentally get in a conversation with someone who really believes in weight loss. But you can have that conversation about how do we not be ambivalent about weight while not pathologizing weight, you know, right. while also not being afraid of getting shamed for using that word weight, you know, yes. because that's nobody wants that. And I think that's like in per the professional space, like we all just want to do right by our people that we're working with. So absolutely. I think absolutely. We just, we're a very polarized space right now. So yes, in, in general, but certainly yeah. in, in, it comes into the health space too. So and, and we, and then we also have space for talking about, you know, there are certain health conditions where certain kinds of food restrictions are necessary. So how do we support people mentally and emotionally and socially through that? And yeah. how do we approach it with the lens of keeping as wide a variety of food as possible while respecting the limitations? You know, there's just so much to this work that I think gets lost in online spaces. Um, but if we want to be really good practitioners able to support the individual human beings that come in to see us, we need to be able to have them yeah. and talk through it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really yeah. excited you're creating that. And I'm yeah. so happy we were able to come on today. I feel like we could have talked for a very long time, but we, we, we got through a lot of good stuff. And I so appreciate your time today, Dr. Murphy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Sean. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I learned a lot in this interview and it also kind of helped me to piece together some of the thoughts I've had about the field. So I'm super grateful for Dr. Murphy's time here today. So let's recap what we learned and really the takeaways that you need to know about weight inclusive, health at every size based care and how you can use this information to empower you so you can actually start improving your health in a real sustainable, effective way. 
So first of all, to recap, we talked about the movements of health at every size or moving towards more weight inclusive approaches is a social movement. And that's really important because all bodies deter deserve dignity and respect. And we don't currently provide that within our medical system or our social cultural pressures and systems. So this is well documented and definitely is causing harm to our health and needs to be illuminated and changed. Secondly, what I think Dr. Murphy did so well is breaking down why this health at every size or weight inclusive movement is very scientific. So not that social and science are really separate per se because social, you know, connectedness and belonging is what we're hardwired to be and get, but she did a really good job. There's really a lot of evidence that the link between weight and our health cannot be fully causal for, we didn't specifically talk about that, but sometimes in this podcast, I'll talk about like the way to determine cause and research is that you randomly assign one person to get drug X and one person to get drug Y, and then you study them over time. And that's really the only way you can determine cause. So there's lots of areas in research where we can't determine cause because we cannot control for all factors. We cannot randomly assign, and therefore we can only determine associations or correlations. And if you hear the term correlation does not imply cause or correlation does not imply causation, that is what we're talking about here. So the fact that, I mean, there's many things, data that suggests that weight cannot, the conditions that we often blame on weight, like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, PCOS, to name a few, we, the fact is that people across all weight ranges, thinner people get these conditions too. So that by itself can show that weight alone cannot be on, the only cause. And also we that doesn't mean, and Dr. Murphy outlined this really well, this doesn't mean that there's not correlations, meaning that, and there also might be a genetic underlying cause, you know, your genes are causing weight gain and some of these other conditions. So it's not that there's not any relationship there, but even if we could determine a causal relationship, we don't currently have effective ways to help people lose weight long-term without collateral damage, as Dr. Murphy so eloquently put it. So without sacrificing well-being, relationship with food, other things. And I will say that we don't cover weight loss surgery or bariatric surgery in this interview. I didn't have time, but I'd love to hear Dr. Murphy's thoughts on that. But really, we're talking about long-term fairly significant weight loss and the odds of that happening without this collateral damage uh, to, again, relationship with food, confidence, mood, preoccupation with food is like five-ish percent, give or take. So the point being, even if we could establish a causal relationship, excess weight causes disease, which we can't, we don't currently have effective ways to help people lose weight and keep it off without sacrificing their well-being anyways. So that is why we have to look at like ethically not doing harm with the ways we're approaching people with their health. So, and she, I like how she put it. If someone was in front of you, a thinner person who was in front of you with diabetes, what would you tell them to do? You wouldn't tell them to lose weight. You tell them to look at, you know, increasing exercise or movement or gentle nutrition or just looking at ways to optimize. But you'd also really be looking at their relationship with food potentially. So the other point that she makes really well is that there's a much wider array of body diversity than the medical community currently allows for. And so biodiversity as a fact, I loved how she said that. And so we need to be looking at those factors as well as social relationships, stress management, sleep as essential aspects of health that are currently very, very under-focused on. So the other point that I think this come, helps us come away with overall, and this kind of relates to my next point about competent eating, which was maybe my favorite part of the interview, although, like I said, I had lots of favorites, but you deserve to have full autonomy over your body. I think that the anti-diet health at every size movement can feel really 
loud sometimes because I think it's an attempt to try to counteract the loudness of diet culture and weight-centric stuff we're fed all of the time. Like it's just air, we're breathing it and we don't even know it. So, but Dr. Murphy really outlined and normalized really well this idea like it's normal and understandable to still desire weight loss and still desire a smaller body because you've been told all the time that that's good, but also because there are social privileges associated with losing weight and being in a smaller body. You, people tend to praise you. You tend to get more, perhaps more acceptance, belonging, or even practically better healthcare or even better job opportunities, or there's all these areas that it's been documented that this is a social privilege. So, you know, once you know the data, you can be empowered to make the choice that's best for you. Like there doesn't need to be guilt or shame about having a hard time accepting your body. So that I thought she outlined that, like that's a normal, understandable desire, but we just have to look at, is there a more effective way to move you towards your goal of better health and, and feeling better? And, and in that way, really getting more autonomy for you as the individual. And finally, uh, we talk about competent eating or Ellen Satter's work with division of responsibility. So this was super cool because Dr. Murphy talks about it as another, really another tool in her toolkit. And I absolutely agree. I think this idea of having a variety of ways to learn to retrust your body and build a flexible, healthy relationship with food. I always thought of it and was within the intuitive eating framework, you can provide structure because some people need and or want that. And that can actually, like with anything, I think structure can give us more freedom, right? I, I know for me this happens like when I have a, a couple hours to myself on a Saturday, I'm like, I'm going to do whatever. And then I end up not doing what I want to do and sort of feeling bad about it. So I literally sometimes write out like a plan for myself, not rigid, but it just helps provide some structure so I can feel like I'm spending my time in the way that I want to, so I can sort of relax and take care of myself, whatever. And I think this is true for many of us, but I also think it's, there's some individual differences. So Dr. Murphy does a good job of saying like, for many of us, intuitive eating, there was so many no's for so long, it's being able to say yes and feel empowered and feel that freedom. And that's really, really helpful for so many people. But for other people and many people that I work with, it can feel really overwhelming or scary. And so competent eating or this division of responsibility can be this way to provide structure. And then within the structure, you still have autonomy and choice. So this might look like for kids or adults, you're having you know, three planned out meal times and maybe some planned out snacks. And within that, you're giving yourself autonomy, choice, like a wide variety of foods and tuning in with your body at those more tuned in times versus feeling like you have to be in tune with your body the whole day and have that, that sort of approach. And so I, I, I mean, tying that back to motivation theory, I think that it's always coming back to only you in the body can really tell if it's like diet mentality, external controlled motivation, or internal empowered motivation. And so increasing autonomy and that flexibility will likely lead to feeling more improved, flexible control, positive self-care and health outcomes. And so that's where it's sort of you have to decide how much, you know, structure you want or need. And this is very similar to like cognitive behavioral therapy for binge eating, we typically talk about usually for most people doing three meals and two to three planned snacks works really well as we're looking at that regular eating pattern. But of course, with each individual, there's flexibility. So if you're having a hard time figuring that out on your own, that is very normal. And then that would be really a great time to work with a professional on that. So I thought it was really cool to talk to Dr. Murphy about all of these things because in some ways, it's similar to what I've been doing with people on a one-to-one -one basis. And I actually also, in my 
free three-day hunger and satisfaction journal, I specifically talk about like if eating without structure freaks you out, I give you some suggestions to what to do about this from a set yourself up for success standpoint. Um, and you can grab that by going to the link in the show notes or going to drhondorp.com forward slash journal. But I just think that was kind of cool too, because I find that to be really helpful for people that I work with. But sometimes with intuitive eating, we can sort of feel like it has to be free flowing and just whatever. Um, but really, it's about finding a, a eating style and pattern that feels really good to you. And that can take time and work to kind of unpack all the diet culture stuff. But I thought that was a super cool discussion. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I can't wait to hear what you think. Um, and then finally, before we finish up here today, as a reminder, if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon's going to have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025. And I love the convenience of Amazon, but I have a super cool way that you can support local bookstores and my blog and podcast simply by buying books you already are going to buy. And you can choose any bookstore on the list in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, I'll tell you one of my recent favorites is digital minimalism. Our families decided to do a screen-free August to reevaluate the role of screen time in our lives. I love the way they talk about it. It's all about value-based choice and autonomy, just like we talk about in this podcast. So check out uh, my Psychology of Wellness bookshop link to support the show and local bookstores near you. All right, everyone, have a great week. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.